0: Hello, my name is Katherine Fisk. I'm truly honored to have been invited to be the Jeunesse Global Visitor at Osgoode Hall at York University. I've long admired your university and so many members of your intellectual community, and I truly wish I could be there in Toronto with you. Indeed, ask almost any American who studies progressive social movements as I do, We all wish we could be in Canada, especially now. I'm about to share my screen so that you can follow along with my lecture, which is called Protection by Law, Repression by Law, bringing labor back into the study of law and social movements. But before I do that, I just want to thank Sarah Slynn and others in your community who made this possible. This project, which is a forthcoming article in the Emory Law Journal, is co-authored with my truly superb co-author, Diana Reddy, who is a labor lawyer as well as now a PhD student at Berkeley in jurisprudence and social policy. And I'm so grateful to her for collaboration. The project addresses the sense among many scholars, both of law and social movements and of labor in the United States, that unions are not social movements and that the study of labor organizing and labor activism isn't part of the study of law and social movements. We disagree and indeed this paper is all about what will happen if we think of labor as a social movement now in the United States and indeed in earlier decades, indeed in the last century. The legal scholarship on law and social movements in the United States tends to focus on movements that claim legal rights especially constitutional rights through courts you could think of the civil rights movement the move, women's movement the environmental movement the lgbtqi movement or including conservative legal movements advocating for more Christianity in public life in the United States. What they all have in common is a focus on the way in which movements affirmatively claim legal rights, either under the constitution or through efforts to seek legislation enacted. The labor movement is a different story particularly as it has been regulated by law in the United States since 1947, it is an alternative model for how social movements and law intersect. And this paper helps us think about why. To begin with, is it in fact the case that labor is underrepresented, at least in US legal scholarship about social movements? The answer is yes. And the slide you're now looking at shows why. Looking at scholarship published in law reviews, which is not representative of all legal scholarship, but is significant for lawyers who study social movements, we see that only 5% of the articles focus on the United States labor movement whereas 30% emphasize the civil rights movement and about a quarter emphasize the women's movement. So our question is how might the experiences of the labor movement and in particular of labor unions as they have been regulated by US law change the way we think about law and social movements. And so this project is an effort at theory generation for US legal scholars, and indeed for US scholars of social movements more generally. But I hope that it may also speak to things that are relevant to Canadian legal scholars. To understand labor and labor unions as a social movement in the United States, I think it's important to understand what we think of as a legal bargain that labor either struck or had imposed upon it in the 20th century. As we all know, under the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, workers acting through unions gained the right to bargain collectively and the union that the majority chose gained the right to be the exclusive representative of workers in a unit and workers themselves as part of this gained rights to join and assist labor unions And this, of course, is true under the Canadian models, nationally and provincially, modeled on the Wagner Act. As you also know, Congress enacted amendments to the Wagner Act in 1947, when a Republican majority took over the Congress for the first time since the Franklin Delano Roosevelt landslide victory in 1932. The Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 made collective bargaining agreements enforceable in court, made unions subject to suit to enforce those agreements, and also restricted union economic social and political power by restricting picketing, by restricting strikes, by restricting boycotts, especially secondary boycotts, by prohibiting the use of labor power to resolve disputes about which union has the right to represent particular group of workers. And then these restrictions were further tightened by legislation enacted in 1959, which also regulated the internal functioning of labor unions in a way that is unique under US federal law for how the internal governance of private membership organizations is regulated. The consequence of this regulatory regime has been significant for labor as a movement and for labor unions as institutions. The case study that I'm going to talk about in a moment was the first decision of the United States Supreme Court under the Taft-Hartley Act upholding a damages award against a union for having engaged in picketing, striking, and what to the Union was perfectly ordinary labor protest. It's important to note, however, that this is not just legal history, although I will talk about legal history. More recently, the same union, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, which represents port workers up and down the Pacific Coast, including in British Columbia and in Hawaii, was recently subjected to a nearly $94 million judgment for engaging in what was ultimately determined to be an unlawful slowdown, to to protest the decision of the port operator in Portland, Oregon to use members of another union rather than the ILWU to engage in certain work. Both the 1952 judgment that I'll talk about and the 2019 judgment are large enough, were and are large enough, that if the union actually had to pay it in 1950s or has to pay it now, it will bankrupt the entire international union. This case, we think, represents a significant moment in the history of labor as a social movement because it was an important milestone in how labor came to understand that its relationship to law was largely going to be one of repressing movement activism and that the costs of violating the law could be disastrous for the union and its members. But exactly how that happened is not well understood. There isn't, for example, a book that recounts the history of how union lawyers, writ large, responded to the repressive legal regulation that Congress enacted in 1947. And so this case study And this article is part of a longer-term project that both I and my co-author separately and together are engaged in to understand how workers, union leaders, and in my case, especially union lawyers, made sense of the changed legal environment and how the decisions they made affected the path that the labor movement would take then and now it all arose from a fairly ordinary dispute at the port in Juneau, Alaska. As World War II wound down, the a lumberyard or a lumber company in Juneau changed hands as the new owners anticipated the importance of shifting to a new model of production in the post-war environment where they could no longer count on lucrative cost plus wartime contracts to sell the entirety of their lumber that was cut and processed at the mill to the United States Armed Forces. The new owners of the mill kept up the operations using all the same workers, all the same processes, but with the significant difference that they refused to honor a collective bargaining agreement that had been in force with the Longshore Workers Union since the 1930s, and instead chose to have Mill workers represented by the International Woodworkers Association to load the lumber onto barges at the lumber yard's docks. From the standpoint of the ILWU, this was a breach of contract and was also an unfair labor practice because the From their view, the employer was repudiating the recognition of the ILWU. They protested over and over. They arranged for a neutral blue ribbon commission to study the question. They tried to resolve the dispute within the framework of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was the federation that both the ILWU and the IWA belonged to. All of them determined that the work was properly done by ILWU members, but the company was particularly keen to get rid of the ILWU. Probably because the ILWU at the time was engaged in a pitched battle with the government of the United States over the effort of the US government to deport ILWU President Harry Bridges, who was an extremely effective union leader, wildly popular with the membership, radical, activist, and a suspected communist. Because Bridges was an Australian national, although he'd been in the U.S. for almost 30 years by that point, the government tried four times, unsuccessfully, to deport him as an alleged communist. So when the Union's efforts to resolve the matter amicably failed, they picketed at the sawmill and managed to shut down its operations. They placed Juno Spruce on the union's unfair list. And so when the company loaded barges with members of the IWA, they had a hard time finding anybody to unload them at ports in British Columbia or on the West Coast ultimately finding the one non-ILWU port at Tacoma, Washington, was willing to unload the Lubber. This protest, the lawyers worried, was going to be a basis for an injunction or damages action under the brand new Taft-Hartley Act, because the protest happened just as Taft-Hartley took effect. They were right. The lawyers were right. Eventually, the NLRB, after two tries of the company, found that the the loading belonged to the IWA, not the ILWU, and that the picketing in protest of the abrogation of the agreement constituted an unlawful strike under the Taft-Hartley Act. The matter was tried to a jury, which awarded $750,000 in damages, which is about $8 million in US dollars in 2020 dollars, and more money than the ILWU International had in its bank accounts. From the union standpoint, this was a clear effort to engage in strike breaking. As you can see from the cartoon published, when the Supreme Court handed down its decision upholding the verdict in 1952, the dispatcher, the ILWU newspaper published a cartoon recognizing that this strategy was going to be a very effective strike-breaking and potential union-busting tactic. But the union's objection to what the company was doing was also illegal and thus the dispatcher critical news coverage, the lawyers worried, might become the basis of further damages actions for the reason that the damages award was in part based on the union having listed Juno Spruce lumber on its unfair list, which is why the longshoremen in British Columbia refused to unload the struck lumber. There was a long legal struggle over the effort to collect the damages judgment. The employer hired lawyers up and down the west coast but especially in California and they even went to Hawaii where the union had just succeeded in supporting the efforts of Agricultural workers in Hawaii, which was at the time a plantation economy run by an oligarchy of white families, largely to grow pineapple and especially sugar. And for the first time in Hawaiian history, all agricultural workers were unionized in the ILWU along with all port workers that phenomenally successful organizing campaign transformed forever the politics of Hawaii which went from being what we would now call a red as in republican dominated plantation state to a blue democratic dominated multiracial, politically progressive workforce The struggle over damages judgment over the effort to collect the damages judgment is a very long, hard fought struggle that ultimately ended in, for the most part, success for the Union. But what we're interested in is not how the Union managed to win this particular fight but how the effect of the struggle changed the way union leaders and union lawyers wound up thinking about protest and activism. And the short answer is that the change was significant. As you can see from this letter on the right, local leaders began to rely more than they had on the advice of counsel And lawyers became important to the strategic thinking of the union so that the union would not wind up losing all of its organizing gains because of the activism of this or that local union. This is not to say that the ILWU became quiescent. It didn't. It continued to engage in protest. It still still does. Indeed, the ILWU, which is not quite as radical as it used to be, but remains a multiracial and activist union, had a one-day strike in support of the demand of the Movement for Black Lives to protest the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in the spring of 2020. The ILWU supported the uh, United Farm Workers boycott of grapes in 1966 although it did pay damages for violation of the secondary boycott law. But the point is, is that lawyers became much more important to the strategic thinking of unions. And thus, what we see is that the same legal regulation that protects and regulates unions and gives them power in the workplace also changes the way unions must address activism by their members. So what do we take from this as we think about how the experience of labor might complicate the way we think of the relationship between law and social movements. In the paper from which this lecture is drawn, We identify five tendencies in existing scholarship on law and social movements. And although, as I said at the outset, these tendencies are more obvious in the scholarship that is published in law reviews, it exists in scholarship published by sociologists, political scientists, and outside of legal um, venues of publication and by scholarship written by such prominent sociologists or political scientists as Michael McCann, Kim Voss, who have studied the labor movement, but also scholars who study other movements. Much of the literature on law and social movements envisions movements engaging in legal mobilization mobilizing ordinary people to advocate for changes in the law. And in this vision, the movement's goal is legal change and movements act on law, either by success, as in enactment of civil rights law, or failure, as in the failure to enact meaningful um, pay equity laws in the United States movements are envisioned predominantly as advocacy organizations, organizations of people to come together as for example, Black Lives Matter has to protest police murders of black and brown people, overwhelmingly, but white people too. And advocating for change, such as the civilianization or the abolition of police departments as we know them. In this framework, often in the scholarship, movements are lawyer led because the goal of much movement activism is legal change. This is especially true, of course, in some of the influential scholarship on the civil rights movement and the role of the NAACP in it, but it's true of conservative movements. It's true of many movements. In thinking about the relationship between movement activism and law, an influential strand of the scholarship, has talked about how law plays a constitutive effect in the conception of what is possible. That is, even if the civil rights movement did not, in the end, achieve enduring desegregation of public education in the United States, It transformed the way that people think about what is just, what law should do. And so that even if the material effects of law are limited, the constitutive effects of law transcend it. And finally, much of the scholarship focuses a great deal on the power of a discourse of legal rights. What changes when people think of something as a right? The, when we bring labor back into law and social movement scholarship, we get a more complex picture or perhaps a more multidimensional picture of the relationship between movements and law. We see the ways in which law channels movement activism, more clearly than much of the law and social movement scholarship. Now we want to I don't want to minimize the way in which scholars, including some that I named earlier and others who I haven't named, talk about the significance of law influencing what movements can do. So in a paper studies the way in which postal regulation could influence how movements communicate. But the labor movement's experience with law, especially as we illustrate in the story of the ILWU and Juno Spruce, is one in which law channels movement activism into strikes, full-on strikes, away from slowdowns into strikes in which the workers leave the workplace away from the sit down strikes that were workplace occupations that were so influential in organizing the automobile industry in the 1930s as well as other industries. Second, we see that Law takes the power that unions have as collective bargaining institutions with contractual rights and contractual responsibilities and leverages that institutional power to force unions into doing things that are legal. And thus, for example, law has vigorously discouraged secondary boycotts with crushing damages judgments like this one or unlawful strikes which also have been subject to crushing damages judgments and this has takes what makes the union powerful its huge members huge number of members the money it has, the dues structure, the collective bargaining contracts that give it power in the workplace and turns it against the radical tendencies of the union. Third, the labor movement as democratic majoritarian institutions, and I mean that small democratic, that is they elect their leadership and are required by law indeed to elect their leadership. The labor movement has always insisted that it is a worker-led organization, that the union is its members, it's not its leaders. And yet, lawyers wound up playing a more significant role than they might have because of the need to protect the union from legal liabilities of the sort we described. Fourth, bringing labor back in allows us to think about how law changed unions and the labor movement in very material ways and how that then changed what unions could imagine as possible. And thus, for example, if we think about why some of the organizing today that focuses on supply chains in agriculture, for example, which has been so influential in the South Florida tomato crop because of the organizing of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers or worker center organizing, that organizes on a community-wide basis, especially in the immigrant community, but not exclusively. One reason that these organizations disclaim being labor unions and disclaim collective bargaining focused on changing conditions on the ground is because the legal restrictions that would come along with being unions And then finally, the experience of the labor movement has been that rights discourse has been less compelling in achieving their goals. In part, that's because the Supreme Court, for example, has never since 1942 ruled solidly that workers have a protected constitutional right to engage in labor protest. Civil rights groups have a First Amendment free speech right to engage in picketing and secondary boycotts. The Supreme Court ruled in a case arising out of the civil rights activism of the 1960s but the labor movement does not, and continues to be enjoined from engaging in on the streets protest. But it's also because the kind of rights that labor claimed, the rights to economic justice, the rights to decent wages, the rights to co-determination of working conditions, are the kind of positive rights that have never gotten traction in the US constitutional order, which has been overwhelmingly focused on negative rights, freedom from, not positive rights, the right to decent wages, the right to a place to live, the right to be listened to by your boss. And so now I want to step back in the few minutes that remain to talk about what we achieve through our theory generation exercise, which we believe is preliminary, but which could be generative of future theoretical work. What we argue is that when movements engage with the legal system, they are in part engaging with the legacies of previous movement actors. For example, when the ILWU in 1966 tried to support the efforts of the United Farm Workers to organize California agriculture on a sectoral basis, and found common cause of the port workers, the warehouse workers, and the farm workers. Both the ILWU and the UFW paid damages for their coalition work which is not to say that the labor movement did not support the UFW, some did, some did not, nor is it to say that the labor movement did not support, for example, the campaigns of the civil rights movement. The labor movement, at least some unions, were provided important financial, political, and logistical support for the lunch counter sit-ins that marked the beginning of the direct action phase of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. But it is to say that both labor and the civil rights groups would pay a price through collaborative work, that law when it constituted one agency in the United States to address labor issues, a separate agency to address civil rights issues, when law thwarted the CIO's drive to organize in the South by using, among other things, the anti-communist oath provision of the Taft-Hartley Act, that made cross sectoral, cross-racial, regional, multi-issue organizing much more difficult. And that wound up influencing the future of the labor movement, making it whiter than it would have been, and making it more male than it would otherwise have been. It also Wound up impoverishing, we believe, and we're not the only ones, civil rights, women's, and other movements that followed after by depriving them of the power that they might have had, had they had a stronger foothold in workplaces and in the power that workers acting collectively have. And so... When we think about how this happened, it's important to understand the role that lawyers played in this process. That often the understanding of the role of lawyers in the social movement process is identified in the four bullet points on the left. We, the scholarship thinks about Lawyers as advocates, lawyers shaping movement strategy to achieve legal goals, lawyers as being an important part of the um, skill and their networks being important in empowering movements, and that's been especially true of the conservative social movements in the United States. And then much of the debate has focused on the professional responsibility that lawyers should have to ensure that they don't dominate union, sorry, don't dominate movements. But when you bring labor back in, we have a somewhat more um, nuanced understanding of the role that lawyers play. Lawyers were the way that law channeled the labor movement towards less radical and less disruptive goals and actions. Lawyers did so because of their professional responsibility to protect their client, the union, and to protect the assets of the union from damages judgments. And thus, no matter how much lawyers tried to help their clients achieve their goals, no matter how much they tried to support the union's radical activism. And the lawyers for the ILWU during the period that I talked about were as radical, as rebellious, as activist as any. They were active in civil rights causes. They were Um, targeted by the FBI for their radical activism. There was an assassination attempt on them. These were not timid, quiescent, or conservative lawyers by any stretch, and yet even they were forced into a position of helping the union leaderships protect the union so that it could survive to fight another day from this repressive law. And so as we think going forward about how the movements that came after the labor movement were shaped by its experience, the we see that there, the challenges that they faced in forming coalitions, the challenge they faced in avoiding the alleged repression uh, sorry the uh, repression associated with alleged communist leadership in their ranks those influenced to some extent the course of the civil rights movement and feminist movement and other movements but i think it's important also to understand that they in turn made a series of choices about how they would organize, how they would choose law, use law, navigate legal repression in pursuit of their goals that has influenced the movements that have come after. And I think as we think about movements and their relationship to law evolving over time in reaction to what has happened in the past, it may give us new ways to think about what comes in the future. And thus, the history of the labor movement is one in which law, especially beginning in 1935, became less repressive than it had been in the past. There is no denying that, but that The price labor paid for the protections it gained and for the power it gained, such as it was, as an institutional player in, to a limited extent, negotiating, if not co-determining working conditions, came with a set of constraints that channeled the future of the movement that made it more conservative than it would otherwise have been, and did so in ways that are perhaps more subtle than the usual understanding of straightforward legal repression might suggest. And thus we close with the language of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, a noted civil rights and labor organizer, who over the course of her lifetime, reflected that law both empowered labor, but also repressed labor. And that we will see, I believe, going forward with the movements arising today, that along with legal protection will be legal, repression as well. And the question is how today's movements will navigate the past and the restrictions of the movements that came before them to achieve their goals in the future. Thank you very much. I look forward to being in conversation during the panel.